Welcome into Chasing Interesting. I'm Craig Hoffman. Have a little bit different of a style show for you today, with good reason. For the first time in a long time, it was 266 days. No, I didn't do the math. I typed it into Google and let Google do the math for me. But in, for the first time in 266 days, I was on the radio yesterday. Yesterday, as I record this intro, it was on Monday, President's Day. And I thought some of the topics that I talked about in my first show back on 106.7 The Fan were similar to types of things that I would talk about on this podcast. And I also had an interview that very much fits the original mold of this show, which was to simply talk to interesting people about interesting things. The interview uh, is Alicia Clark. Alicia was an All-American at Middle Tennessee State University when I was there, she led the nation in scoring. She is an awesome person, and she went from this five foot ten, thirty point a game, nearly dominant post player to an all league defensive guard of the WNBA. And her path there was far from linear and far from easy. And so, talking to her, knowing what she was and what she's turned into about her journey, was really cool. And uh, I'm I'm super proud of Alicia and knowing what she was capable of back in the day in terms of her work ethic and everything and watching her apply that to her craft and and carving out this career that now has her in Washington, D.C. Uh, she just signed a two-year contract with the Mystics, which is why I had her on Washington, D.C. Sports Radio. And she's a two-time WNBA champion. She's a multiple-time champion in other leagues around the world. She was in France, uh, where she's playing right now as we talked. So uh, we hopped on a Zoom call on Sunday, actually, to tape the interview for Monday's show. And so you'll hear that at the end of the pod. And this will actually be an extended version from what was on the air. The other two things you'll hear are two segments that I did on the show. First is one that very much fits the mold of what this podcast has been in terms of the cross of, well, really this podcast has been almost straight politics, but this is a mix of sports and I would say social issues. I actually hate when people talk about protests during the national anthem as politics because bad faith actors made it about politics. One side adopted a specific view, which in no way represents any kind of political doctrine. It is a choice for freedom of speech. It is a choice in terms of what is being protested itself for equality. And it shouldn't be viewed as politics. It should be viewed as a simple right of humanity, which is something I touch on in this as well. But uh, in the NBA, uh, there was protests during the national anthem, obviously, like there were in all sports. And Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, decided as the season started, he just wasn't going to play the anthem. He didn't make a big deal out of it. He just didn't. And for 13 games, nobody noticed. And so eventually someone did. The NBA said, no, every team is going to play the anthem. And I think that's silly. And I'll tell you why in the segment. Well, I guess I told you why, but you'll hear it uh, because that's how a podcast works. The other segment is something that... I just feel, felt needed to be said. Uh, Washington football has suspended or put on pause, to use their term, their cheerleading program, and nobody seemed to ask the cheerleaders. And while that may seem like a really superficial kind of thing to talk about, I think as you listen, you'll understand why it's pretty important. And despite all the good things that the new regime at Washington football is doing, this was another example of professional sports the NFL patriarchal society 
not listening to women. And so I thought it was worth connecting those dots, and thus you'll hear me attempt to do so. Uh, So we'll go in that order. We'll go Anthem, Washington Football Cheer, and then the interview with Alicia. And it's all right here on Chasing Interesting. I want to talk about another NBA thing. This is really an all-sports thing, uh, but specifically the NBA that came up last week. uh, And I have, as I mentioned a couple of times during the show, like where I've been the last year working inside a sports organization has given me some perspective on things that I, I otherwise just wouldn't have. And perhaps no uh, single current issue do I have more that I think that people don't consider on than the playing of national an- the national anthem before sporting events. And, oh boy, here he goes. Uh, but last week, it was discovered, I guess, that the Mavericks just hadn't been doing it. All year. 13 games. Nobody said a word. Then all of a sudden, a reporter was like, wait a second. They asked the Mavericks, and they're like, yeah. Mark, Mark Cuban was like, yeah, I just decided we weren't going to play it. And I was like, Eureka. Finally, someone figured this out. Because your opinion aside on whether to stand or kneel, and to me, it's kind of pretty simple. If you think like the way the current status quo is, this has become, for better or for worse, a referendum on whether or not you think black people are actually human beings, deserving of real rights. So to me, it seems pretty simple and straightforward. I am in solidarity with that. People who are in need are asking me to do something very simple. I'm going to do it. I understand other people have other opinions. I don't really want to debate that right now. Perhaps another day if we get really bored. Debate's long been had. However... The fact that people have to make that determination in the first place is kind of crazy. And as someone who was watching athletes and talking to athletes who last year when we were, so the NWSL, National Women's Soccer League, where I've been working the last year uh, until a couple weeks ago, um, we were the first sport back. We were in Utah. Uh, we had a bubble out there for the NWSL Challenge Cup. And so, in you know, post-COVID and obviously right in the middle of the nationwide protests uh, to, to protest the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others. The first athletes that were going to be really visible were NWSL players. And watching these discussions happen behind the scenes and players decide because while I just explained to you where I would be if I was an athlete in that position, there are plenty of athletes who do associate Anthem and military, for instance, and they have military in their family. So for some of them, they would even be like, all right, well, I understand that it's not about this, but maybe my brother who's in the military uh, feels a certain way. And now I have to decide between disappointing him 
and causing strife within my own family, even if I understand, and strife with my black teammates and my black friends and letting them down because they expect me to, to protest in solidarity with them. And I know this, this is not an original point, but like seeing the anguish that that caused often extremely young people, and this goes to all sports, right? Athletes are young. I'm 30 now. I turned 31 in a couple weeks. Like I'm at the point where a lot of these athletes are almost a decade younger than me, right? You got 20 majority of the way the contracts work now in the NFL because rookie contracts are so much cheaper. The the league has shifted younger. So there's a ton of players like the, the wide majority of players are 25, 26 and younger, 23, 24 even. Right, we think of Deshaun Watson as his veteran quarterback in the middle of all this quarterback speculation. He's 25. And so for us with the spirit, when I was there, like all but I think three players were 25 and younger. Seeing it more in baseball, you're seeing it in the NBA, so many young guys. And so you have these young people. That, as the older I get, you understand how little perspective you had at that age on the world. Being forced, not just privately, but publicly, to make a declaration about an issue that is certainly not within the realm of their expertise. We expect all of a sudden athletes to know. And like, yes, we should want our athletes to be good role models. And I think that for, especially in the NBA and the NFL and the amount of money that they make, like it's not unreasonable to, to say, hey, you're making an absurd amount of money because you're in the public eye. We expect you to do a little homework and uh, be good members of society. I don't think it's an unreasonable ask. But do we expect them to be academic experts on... Any topic, nevertheless, race in America? Of course not. It's unreasonable. Informed would be nice. And obviously, uh, especially in the two sports I just mentioned, and NBA and the NFL, professional basketball, professional football, uh, predominantly, they have firsthand experience of what it's like to be black in America because they are black people in America. But you were asking people to make these declarations of allegiance and then have conversations in a public forum that we don't ask any other profession to do and it's just stupid it just makes no sense and the history is fairly straightforward uh there was a time when national morale was extremely down around i believe it was the first world war and so they started playing patriotic songs at sporting events so it was it started with, with one that the president was at it was a baseball game and it was like wow this feels really good uh this just boosted morale so we should do it more often and they did and then it became every sporting event and by the 1940s like every sport was doing it and they'd added the national anthem for the game the anthem itself is complicated because it's got some racist history which you know not great uh so you have all this complicated stuff and it would seem as if to avoid all that that history of essentially giving into government propaganda and to not make these athletes be in this horrendous spot to make a public declaration of that means something. Here's the simplest way I can put it, right? I keep saying, oh, that's complicated. Like, again, I don't think it's that complicated, but through the public perception, it's complicated because it means something different to so many different people. So when an athlete chooses to kneel or not, what it means to me versus what it means to someone else are, could be completely opposite. And on some level, when you're consuming mass media 
or it's being portrayed through mass media. Keyword being mass is a broadcast. Literally, this is being broadcast to millions of people. Who's right and who's wrong is irrelevant. You're just making a lot of people mad. And then you're having, forcing them to answer questions and justify their decision when those answers are going to ring hollow with some people or be unsatisfactory to others because you don't say the exact right thing. And it's just not their area of expertise. So the Mavericks last week opened the door to do away with all that. Say, you know what? We've done this for a long time. And really the way, the only reason of why we do it is because we've done it that way forever. But there was a time when before sporting events, there wasn't the anthem played and there wasn't any kind of patriotic song, if you want to call it that, or um, any kind of how I want to to less biasly say patriotic song. Um, Any song with national significance. Is that fair? That work? Cool. Um, there, like that was a conscious decision that was made at one point to to inject that into the sport or into sports. So you could make the conscious decision to take it out. And the Mavericks opened that door. And I was like, I cannot believe it took this long. The MLS actually, to give them credit, I don't think at their tournament over the summer they played the anthem. Um, but in the in the major sports in regards to the ones that get the highest viewership, and I know that opens up another conversation of what can consider major and minor, blah, 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 the traditional four major sports. This was the first time that that window had been open. And instead of having a review and having a conversation or even letting teams continue to make their own decisions... The NBA, traditionally one of the most progressive and thoughtful leagues, a league that is willing to take a few short-term hits to open up a wider conversation about what is right and wrong, said, hell no, and slammed the door right in Mark Cuban's face. Without a thought. Things seem like they can't be done until they're right ahead of you. And I guarantee you, if we stop playing the national anthem now, before sporting events, that in three to five years, if not sooner, no one would care. Whatever job it is that you do, unless you work in Congress where you have to say the Pledge of Allegiance before, which makes a little bit more sense in Congress, that you'd pledge allegiance to the flag. And even then, never mind, I'm not going down that road. It makes sense in Congress. And unless you work there, you there's no thing that you, no job where you have to do anything remotely similar. And it's not even like, oh, it's a vast gathering of people and it's a great time to unite for America. You don't do it before concerts. You don't do it before church services. You don't do it before anything except for sporting events. And there's one sporting event where it makes some sense. And that is when two national teams are playing and you play both. Obviously, the Olympics, you play it for the winner. It's a reward. Fine. At that point, you were representing the country. Fine. But there's not even... People say like, oh, you should be grateful for this country where you can make millions of dollars. I got news for some of y'all who think that LeBron James should be grateful that he can make a, a dollar a minute in America playing basketball. I can't remember if it's a minute or a second, 
LeBron makes like a dollar thirty-seven in either a minute or a second. Lionel Messi makes five times that. There's nothing uniquely American about capitalistic sports. Not a single thing. Which is fine. But there's nothing that screams like we should play the song of America before this other than that's how we've done it for 80 years at this point. And I just think that having seen the pain and strife and the real agony that it causes the people who are having to publicly decide how they want to act in that moment, it would do us all a lot of good to just not do it at all. And I don't understand why the NBA so swiftly decided that it wasn't worthy of consideration. I think that's a huge mistake. I will never understand it. And that's my piece on that. I want to talk about something that is might feel out of left field, um, but is important. And use... My voice here back on the fan to give voice to a group of people who have been in the news, but have not been heard from by and large. And that is the Washington football cheerleaders. You may have heard last week, their team has been suspended until further notice. And as many of you know, I reported quite a bit on this story going back years. Um, I was the one, I'm not saying this to be braggadocious, I'm saying this to give context. I was the one who broke that Dennis Green was fired um, amidst the initial scandal a couple of years ago, um, right after the New York Times broke their piece. Um, I had been working on some stuff already, um, and obviously the New York Times did an incredible job um, with their expose in terms of the the journalism that they did. Um, There's been constant review, and and, and I, I can tell you from reporting this story extensively, um, and, and some of the the goings on, not just with the cheerleaders, but the business side of the Washington football operation going back five years. Like, there's a lot of different opinions on a lot of different facets of different things. Um, but this news last week took the cheerleaders by surprise, and whether it is through um, reporting the story or some of my connections in the DC fitness space where a lot of um, whether these women just work out or um, are actual trainers themselves as their full-time jobs. Like I've gotten to know uh, a couple and I'm not obviously going to say like who told me what. And and I will say that there's a wide variety of opinions and a wide variety of feelings on a lot of things and good luck. um, Even if you know me like pinning who said what, because some of the people that um, like I've done events with or, or like, it's public of who some of my connections are, not the people that talk to me about this kind of thing. Like the reporting is kept separate from everything else. Um, which I say obviously to, to protect everyone involved, um, but also just to be transparent. Like you couldn't connect the dots if you tried. Um, with that said, I had someone who was a source for me and kind of gave me a lot of context on what was going on. A former cheerleader reached out to me, um, after the story broke And say, like, nobody asked us. And I think that's a really important point. So much of the reporting and the commentary around any cheerleader story, and especially this one, which has been in the news here, has been done in an extraordinarily patriarchal way. And in a way that undercuts 
the humanity of the very women involved. Like they are an adults who have their own thoughts and feelings and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Their own stake in, in what is going on. Like they haven't made their own decisions. Like they didn't decide to try out for this team. Like they didn't do it for a reason. And for as much as people like to to hate on cheerleaders and the stereotypical or the stereotype of what a cheerleader is, is like this dumb whatever um, who doesn't have like a thought or is is doing it for whatever reasons that you think are nefarious or like they just want to be close to the athletes or like straight up like sexist reasons. That's not the case at all. Professional football cheerleading is about as high a form of dance as you can get that's out there, like in a public space. Like obviously you could be, uh, if, you want, if you're if you that, that good, you could go and be a professional dancer for a pop star and be on tour and like work for Beyonce or, you know, any any act that's big enough to have backup dancers. And that's a really success, like in terms of professional dance, uh, specifically hip-hop dance, like that, that is the ultimate, right? If you're good enough to dance for Beyonce, then like you're the best, one of the best dancers on the planet. Um, and maybe if you are someone who also has a choreography background, you get to, to do the choreography and that's an even bigger step up. But beyond like being in the pop world and being a part of a professional dance group in that way, one of the highest places you can do it and a place where you can do it as kind of like a part-time side thing where you might have another profession or um, a family to take care of or however, whatever it is that takes up the majority of your time is doing it in the NFL. And on the sports hierarchy of dance teams, NFL is typically the highest. And so the idea that you would take this opportunity and just wipe it away from the women involved because the men involved can't keep themselves together in a professional manner is not fair to the women involved at all and to do it without consulting them is to do the same thing that you've been doing all along it is for a group of men who are behaving poorly to decide for a group of women that the way to fix the problem is not to fix their own behavior but to get rid of the women I don't think there's any more dots to connect for me to explain to you why that's extremely problematic. It is the way that things are handled all over every kind of professional world, and it's even worse in sports. It is the same reason why these cheerleaders would have to sign non-frat agreements saying they can't be friends with, socialize with, nevertheless date the players, but the players, they would never be held responsible. Because they're too valuable to the franchise. But instead of saying like, look, there are rules here. And you have to follow them as a member of this organization. They they make the cheerleaders the ones that have restrictions, quote unquote. While the men do not. And that is also to say, to even give in to the concept that that's problematic in the first place. That you, that you as an employer could have two people in completely separate parts of the organization that do not touch one another at all and legislate who they're friends with, nevertheless, if we're going to be adults about this, who they sleep with.
You have to accept that that's an acceptable thing to do. And I understand in corporate HR, like, and, and people who are HR professionals, when you get into issues of like, okay, you're reporting, you know, you're in a relationship with someone who's your superior. You get into all kinds of potential thorny issues that experts have spent lots of time going over. And I'm not going to touch that because that is not my area of expertise, but like a cheerleader and a player have no interaction with each other at all. And you're going to legislate that and then put the onus on the woman. And then when all of a sudden something goes poorly with not even the players, but with management, senior type people who are supposed to make really important decisions for a multi-billion dollar organization, your decision, because those people can't behave, is to take away the opportunities from women. That is, in a word, problematic. And I'm appreciative of the women who, when I reported on this story, were willing to share their stories and for those that reached out after this decision last week and was like, like no one ever asked us because the reality is if the men just behaved and you made a couple of changes to empower some accountability, you could still have it. And instead, and whether if you want to talk about, have a discussion about, you know, tradition and so, such things in a cheerleader program and whether or not you should have cheerleaders in the first place. That's a different conversation and there's a lot of really smart people that have a wide variety of opinions. But the reality is what no the, the group that nobody seems to be asking is the actual people involved. Which seems like a kind of huge issue. Because those women have a sisterhood and a tradition and a history that because a group of men couldn't behave themselves is now being completely thrown away without them having a say at all. Alicia, it's great to talk to you again, and uh, it's so crazy to me to, to see how your career has played out. Um, thinking back to like when I got to watch you at MTSU, you're the nation's leading scorer. You're this post player, and watching you there, knowing like knowing your work ethic, I was like, she's going to figure out how to play in the league. But to watch how your game has evolved and the role that you play in, in the WNBA and have, have carved a career out for yourself is, is so cool to me. And I'm so curious now kind of watching it play out from afar and getting to talk to you again, what that those first couple of years were like when you knew probably, okay, I'm going to have to evolve my game. I'm not going to be a, a 5'10 post player in the WNBA scoring 30 a game. So when did you realize that evolution was going to take place? And then also, when did you realize what this evolved version of you was going to have to look like to be successful and carve out a career? Yeah, well, I mean, it's been a long way since MTSU days. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but for me, like I knew before I got drafted that I was going to have to trans, like I was going to have to transition into a new position, into a guard position to play in the league. Um, and that came from like my first conversation with Beth Stark at Belmont, um, my sophomore year of college. And she was just like, listen, you know, she's to this day, one of my favorite coaches I've ever played for one of my favorite human beings. Like I'm, I'm so grateful to her and Zach, um, for what they have meant to me. But, um, you know, she sat down and I was like, do you really think, cause you know, at the time, like everyone's like, Oh, you could play professionally. And I was just like, okay, yeah, right. <laughs> and, um, you know, Beth has always been very straightforward, very honest. And she was just like, listen, don't get like your career. Like you've had a great career so far. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's been amazing. You've accomplished some great things. She was like, but to, if you do want to play professionally, like you're going to have to be a guard. 
Um, and she was like, you know, that's going to be something that you're going to have to decide if that's what you want to do. Um, and I was just like, okay. And she was like, cause there's just, there's no way you're going to be a post at the next level. She's like, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. So that was the first time that I really started thinking, okay, post collegiate career of actually having a basketball career. Cause going into college, if you would have, Craig, if you would have told me like I was going to be a professional basketball player coming from Mount Juliet and like the way that I started, I would have laughed in your face and been like, okay. But at that moment, I was like, you really have a shot to be able to do this. And so that just kind of like started the, the whole process of, you know, taking my free time and learning how to face up to the basket. Cause I, you know, I was a back to the basket post player. I didn't shoot outside of the free throw line. Like my life revolved around layups and free throws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it started with, with Beth and Zach, like I would go into Nashville, my, you know, my transfer year that I sat out when the team traveled, I would be in Nashville working out with her and Zach, learning how to just face up, um, learning how to shoot from 15 feet, like just doing the little stuff to, to start that process. And so once I got to the league, um, I, I mean, a lot of people know this, but like I was cut my first two years, you know, I was drafted to San Antonio in the second round and, when I got there, you know, it was, we're going to help, you know, make this transition. We want to see, you know, you're gonna have to become a guard. So in camp, that's what I was doing for the first time ever as like a, as a pro. Mm -hmm. And it was, I was like, Whoa, um, this is a lot. I, I basically had to relearn the game, um, as, as an adult, which was, which is crazy when you, when you look back at it. Yeah, for sure. Especially considering how much success you had in a different different phase of the game. I'm curious about those two those first two years because, like you said, it wasn't just your your rookie year. You don't make it after you get drafted in 2010. You don't make a roster in 2011 either. So, was there any point that you thought about just being like, you know what, it's too much. Like, I'm not gonna be able to do this. I'm out. Uh, what was the closest you ever came to that? Um. I, I mean, it definitely happened after the second, the first year it like, it was a blow just because I had never been, I had never been cut. I've never been, you know, I've been able to work my way into a position, work my way into, you know, being able to play. Um, so this was the first time for me personally that I was, they were like, ah, nope, what you're doing isn't enough. No. And so that for me was hard. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a really hard time, but then that was more of like, okay, I'm going to show them type of thing because they were just like, you know, you're not ready at the three, which I'm like, I know (laughs) I've never played that. So that for me was motivation to come back the following year and be like, okay, now I'm ready. So, um, you know, I took that year overseas in Israel for the first year to like, really just do like, just play as like a face-up player, not even trying to be a guard because I played post there, but it was just like, be a face-up post player now mm-hmm. um and it wasn't as you know glamorous or as you know high scoring as my career before that but i was like this is what i need to do to be able to be better so coming back the next year um i felt better i felt like i was more prepared um and again got cut the last day and it was we want to keep a bigger player and so at that point i was just like <laughs> I can't grow. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was like, I like, what do you want me to do? And so that for me, that year was the year I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll give it one more shot. I'll continue to get better. Um, and if I don't make a, if I don't make a team next year, I'll just do something else with my summers. Like it is what it is. Like at least that way, when I walk away from it, I can say I did everything I possibly could. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you do make the team in Seattle 2012 and then by like year three, four, you're starting to be a starter consistently. And I'm, well, I'm wondering, cause you have that like kind of, I don't even know what to call it, but like you have that experience of being cut and that, that fear probably of like, even I'm sure the first couple of years where you're not playing a whole lot, you're like, man, I could get cut any day now. Like they could just decide they want to change out the bottom of the roster. But then when, as you start becoming a starter, did you ever get to a point where you felt comfortable and now all of a sudden you're looking up instead of down? Like how, how high can I climb in like the hierarchy of this team? How much can I solidify myself as opposed to like, am I going to be here tomorrow? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, my first three years, three or four, probably three years, I like I never unpacked my suitcase because of that reason. I knew I could be cut any day because when I made the team, um, you know, I was told in the meeting, like, you know, it's congratulations. Da, 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 and then it's like, OK, around Olympic break, we're probably going to make changes um, with the team. And it's, you're probably going to be the one we do that with just to you know, let you know now. So that way it's not a surprise. Um, and so I didn't know, I was like, should I be excited? Should, like, how should, I don't know how to feel right. right now. Um, and so, you know, because of that, I never unpacked my bags and one, because I never got anything more than just a training camp contract. So that's not guaranteed. And so it wasn't until after Tina Thompson's retirement, um, at her ceremony, she just was like, unpack your bags. Like you deserve to be here you know, so you need to unpack your bags. And that's, a heck of a, that, that's a heck of a person to be like, Hey, you're good. <laughs> right. Oh, right. Just a hall of famer. It's um, cool. You know, just, you know, just a hall of famer, one of the best to ever play this game. No big deal. Um, but that for me, like t- mine and Tina's um, relationship, our bond was really special um, just because of who she is as a person at her core and the way that we were able to connect um, and communicate and just have, you know, build that, that friendship. Um, she was like a huge part in, in me starting to believe that I deserve to be in this league. Um, cause I'm sitting here, I'm like, okay, if Tina Thompson believes that you should be here, like you need to get your ish together home girl and like start (laughs) having that belief in yourself, you know, like that for me was that for me was like the first indication of like, okay, yeah, you do deserve to be here. And so the first year I got a, an actual like season contract was what, what year did I 2014? Um, and that for me was like a huge milestone. Cause I'm like, okay, now I'm off of, it, it still wasn't guaranteed, but it's like, okay, now that's like a step further. And so um, even in starting and playing and stuff, it was just like, nothing was ever, I never felt comfortable because you know, like when we play teams, I'm always the one they leave open. I'm always the one that's not involved. I'm all, you know, so it's like, oh, they can, if, if I'm out here not even making a difference, like for sure, I'm going to lose my spot. Like, so it wasn't until probably, I'm trying to think, like really think when I felt probably until 2017, maybe going into the 2018 season that I wow. felt um, confident in, in my role, in my position in this league. That's crazy. Cause in 2015, you yeah. started 31 games. Yeah. Which is, you know, but again, that was like a time where I, for me, and I like, I'm not going to speak for the coaches, but I felt like I wasn't really a factor. You know, it was like, I'm going to be out here. I'm going to run the floor. I'm going to defend. I'm going to rebound. 
Um, I'm going to bring energy. And it's like, yeah, those are all great things. But how many people can you find to do that? You know, it's like, what am I, I didn't feel like I was really a factor or really contributing. Um, so yeah, I didn't feel comfortable. And, you know, even in the leading up, so 2017, I probably, I started to feel probably more confident. And then 2018, it was the year that I felt like, okay, yeah, like you belong in this league. Alicia Clark with us on 106.7 The Fan. She is the newest signing for the Mystics. WNBA season should start in the spring. Uh, Craig Hoffman with you here on The Fan. Um, So fast forward a little bit more from 2018. You guys win the the title with the Sparks. You head back over to Europe. You win a title in Poland. You've won in France. You win again uh, with Seattle, or sorry, the Storm uh, in in 2020. So basically from like 2018 through the wobble, like you've just done nothing but win. Like what is a, a common theme that you think you see on winning teams, ch- true championship level winning teams. And, and what did you see in the mystics that made you think that's a place where I can keep this winning streak going? Ooh. Um, I think a big part of it when I now looking back, reflecting, I think um, one, the mentality of the same mentality of the team, like, you know, in Seattle, like we wanted to win, like that was our sole focus, but it was like, we knew that was the end goal. So it's like, our mentality was, what are we doing every day to be able to reach that end goal? And I think when you have a a collective group of people that understand that and, you know, so every day that you're coming in, it's not wasted. It's for a purpose. Um, I think makes a really special combination as well as having selfless people, selfless people around you. Um, You know, I've been on, you know, in Seattle my whole career and been able to play alongside some of the like most amazing women to play this game that are majority of them are probably going to end up, or they're not already in the hall of fame. Like they're going to end up there. Right. Um, And so the, the common thing that I've noticed through all of them is just their selflessness um, I mean, everybody from Tina Thompson to Katie Smith uh, to Lauren Jackson to Sue Bird uh, to Stewie, you know, to Jewel, like all these players that um, are so amazing at what they do, they have that selfless factor about them, which is contagious to everyone else. Because it's like, okay, if I see, you know, Stewie in here, you know, working and and doing all these things that she's doing and then stepping into the game and giving me confidence, you know, imagine what that does for the next player. You know what I mean? So um, that for me, when I look back and just kind of reflect on that, I think, and even over in Europe, you know, having the team that we had here in France, the team that we had in Poland, um, it was, it's a common theme. It's a common denominator and everybody like, yeah, you have, you have a a tough mentality. You got some dogs out there on the court, but you also have people that want to see everyone else around them win. So when everyone wins, it it just elevates your team. I got to ask, what's your favorite Sue story? (laughs) Favorite Sue story? Um, I mean, (laughs) I don't know. Favorite Sue story. Um, I don't know. Like Sue's... (laughs) She's a really funny person. Like her sense of humor is like top notch. Like the way that she's able to tell stories, like she needs to, she needs to be a narrator one day just to be able to, cause she, the way that she's able to tell stories is, is really great. Um, dang, you put me on the spot. My favorite did. Sue story. I did. I don't even, 
Um, I'm gonna have to come back to this. Let me think about this because I don't, I don't know. My favorite Sue story. All right, we'll th- I'm gonna come back to this. All right, we'll come. Maybe we'll come back to it. when you, when you get, finally get in DC. We'll do this again, and and I'll I'll, yeah. I'll give you all the the leeway. And because like you name like five players there that I'd also want like your favorite Tina Thompson story, your favorite Stewie story. Yeah. Like, I covered Stewie when she was uh, at UConn her freshman year too. So um, after I had left MTSU and gone to Syracuse, so I, I've I've got lots of stories I would like to get out of you. So we'll, I, I'm gonna hold you yeah. to that. We'll do story time with Alicia okay. down the road. Um, okay. Speaking of great players, though, obviously when you think of the Mystics, Elena's the the headliner what are you most looking forward to of of playing with her um i mean obviously like you said just the caliber of player that she is um she knows what it takes to win and she's so versatile and again the selfless aspect that selfless quality um you know of a superstar she has and so i'm like just being able to team up with her because i know how hard it is to to go against her (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and so i think for me just being able to now be alongside her and and partner with her and like how she her perspective of the game and what she sees from the offensive side of things um and then obviously you know just it's a it's a nightmare matchup because she she can post she can shoot she can handle the ball like she just she's a tough matchup. So to be able now to play alongside her in that, um, I think is going to be really, really special. I know your competitiveness and the kind of role you've cut out of this defensive player, you know, all, all league defense type player. Are you going to want that challenge in practice every day? Or are you at the point in your career? You're like, you know what? I'm 33 now. We got one of these young bucks guard Elena in practice. Like maybe I'll do a possession and just go all out and show them, show them the level, but I don't need that every day, every possession. No, for me, um, you know, the reason I've been able to grow in this defensive, you know, side of the game is because, you know, in practice, I am guarding, you know, the best players. I don't know how that'll be in in DC just because, you know, she plays the power forward most of the time. But like, you know, I didn't really match up with Stewie a whole lot in practices, just like one on one, but if it was off a switch or whatever. Um but yeah, no, I want those matchups. Like I want that because, you know, that's where you grow and get better and that's where it's supposed to be hard. And, you know, once you're in practice doing that and, and going up against, you know, Elena um, and the other players, it's like, okay, when I get in the game, it should be easier. Game should be easier because I've been doing this work every day against, you know, a caliber player like, um, like her. So no, I'm not going to shy away from it. I'm competitive. I want to get better. That's my goal every year is to come in better. And that's the only way you can is, is by going against the best and, and taking those reps. So I knew you were going to say that. I figured I'd just ask. <laughs> I know you well enough. Alicia Clark you with us know. <laughs> on the fan. I got two more questions for you real quick uh, before I let you go. So first one uh, is just simply like, on the the mentor side of things that you know as i mentioned you're 33 now you've won a couple WNBA championships you've carved yourself out as an established player in the league do you see your role differently coming to a new team as someone who can take younger players under her wing um or are you just trying to fit in where you get in like what what are those been discussions because i'm sure that was something that was probably discussed with as you go through the free agent process like what they want your role to be not just on the floor but off so so what's the answer to what your role will be off the floor with this franchise Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I've been able to establish a leadership position and, you know, coaches see that when I'm on the floor, like I don't have to explain 
that, oh no, I'm, I'm a leader. Like, that's what I do. Like you can, it just, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> it just happens, you know, it's, it's, it's inside of me. It's something that I've always possessed, even going back to before I was even good at basketball, you know, I was, that was, um, a quality that was, that I've always had. And so that's not going to change, um, by any means. And I think that too, is what's kind of helped, you know, help me succeed at this level. Um, because, you know, for, for a lot of years, you know, what makes great leaders are, are people that can understand the people that they're around, that they work with and know how to bring that together, know how to bridge that gap and um, allow everyone to be their best version of themselves. And also understanding like, okay, who responds to what, like, if I talk to, how can I, how can I talk to Tosh to get her, you know, motivated and going versus how I can talk to um, Ariel or how I can talk to Elena, like knowing, knowing those personalities and knowing how, how each person responds is something that, um, you know, I've been gifted with. I'm, I, you know, I'm an, <laughs> I'm a very empathetic person. Um, so I can, I have that, that feels. So, um, that's going to remain the same in DC and, um, it's going to be weird being like, I don't know, like on a team of younger players. Like I, like I'm now and here in France, I just found out like I'm the oldest player on my team. And I'm like, <laughs> when did this happen? You know, in Seattle, it was like, okay, Sue's been there the long. So it's like, Sue is that right. person. I'm like one of the older players, but I wasn't like, but you're still like eight years younger than Sue. Cause Sue's going to play forever. <laughs> Sue's going to play till she's a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> That's but funny. um yeah so that'll that'll remain the same um and just that's something that i'm very passionate about is pouring into others and helping other people um be the best version of, version of themselves so i love it uh and last question is purely self-indulgent uh who do you still keep in touch with from from the mtsu days Th those teams were so tight i'm just curious a decade later like who's still you're you're talking to whether it's every week every month or a couple times a year yeah, um, my constants are Amory and Chels. Those are I talk to them very Not often. Like Amory, yeah. <laughs> like when I go home, um, like I spend time with Amory and get to spend time with her and the kids, and we always make time to catch up when I'm home, which I love. Um, Chels, you know the same. Like she's in Nashville now. She's back in Nashville now. She and I talk, um, and then Jackie. Like Jackie and I will will talk. Um, every, like every month or so we talk a lot on Instagram and keep up that way. Um, but uh, you know, for holidays and birthdays, we're always che texting each other and like, checking in and seeing how, uh, we're doing. So those are my girls. And then Courtney, um, Courtney Cooper. Now she was Courtney Jones. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's, you know, also my sis, her and Taisha Petty. Taya didn't play there when I was there, but Courtney, um, did. And she's another one that I talked to really, um, pretty frequently. So, um, those are my girls. Those are my girls for life. Um, you know, and, and Ty's like my little sister. So anytime I'm home, she comes by and, you know, just comes to chat and hang and eat and, you know, be able to catch up. So those are my girls. That's awesome. Uh, it's so cool to do this so much later, uh, in our lives. And I'm glad that they've crossed again and, and looking forward to seeing you, uh, playing in DC. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It's so good catching up with you. All right, Leash. It was great catching up, and uh, I'll talk to you soon for sure. All right. Good to see you. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Chasing Interesting. If you like what you heard, uh, there's plenty more in this podcast feed of all kinds of different topics. Uh, head back, listen, fi find a podcast that works for you. Hit play. It's the beauty of podcasting. It's all here. 
Uh, you can subscribe on any podcast platform. Obviously, you know how to find it because you're listening right now. So whichever one you're listening on, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc., etc., Google Play, just hit that subscribe button. If you liked it, rate and review. If you didn't like it, remember what your mother told you about what happens if you don't have nice things to say. Um, other than that, follow me on Twitter at Craig Hoffman on Instagram at Craig underscore Hoffman. And I will see you back right here soon on Chasing Interesting. Interesting.